Welcome to the Sunday evening service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where the Bible is opened and explained. Christians are encouraged and Christ is lifted up. Thank you for joining us and may your hearts be blessed as God's word is taught. And now, enjoy this message from Pastor Lauren Regeer. Have your Bibles tonight. Let's go to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. But tonight my heart has just been um, kind of burdened with how to respond when we're facing tremendous trials or, in a sense, national crises. And so I was thinking, as we all heard the news this week about the shooting that occurred just north of us in Nashville this past week, and this time it wasn't just, uh, wasn't just it wasn't a public school, state school, it was a, a Christian school. Of course, we don't know exactly the composition of the school and all that, but it claims to be Covenant uh, Presbyterian Christian School there in Nashville. The question that often comes to preachers is why would God ever allow something like this to happen? What's the proper Christian response? And uh, it's not uh, something that's new. These things have been happening over and over. And in fact, I've Uh, added a slide to this one, a few slides that might help us think about how people do respond in the face of troublesome, uh, difficult, surprising, hurtful news. There's all kinds of different responses to this as we look at these six precious faces now whose lives have been taken away and they are in eternity, uh, three children, uh, three adults, these could be easily teachers at our own Christian school. And so you might think, why in the world would God allow such uh, a violence against people who are trying to just stand up and teach students? And I would think with a Christian, at least a Christian orientation, why would this ever happen? Well, there's all kinds of responses, as you know, to this kind of thing. People cry and they pray. We saw that on the news as Folks responded to the, um, to the reports that there had been six fatalities by, um, by a shooter who had come, come into a school there in Nashville. They sympathize. You'll see this often as people gather and hold vigils for folks that have been uh, really violated in this kind of way. Folks sympathize. They cry. They pray. Often they show support. We sometimes don't know what to do, do we? And so uh, folks do their best to just let, uh, let the parents and the students know that they care. Uh, then I've often heard long discussions about why or how could this happen and what really motivated the crime as this person uh, gained access to a school and uh, with uh, a gun took the lives of, again, six folks. Why or what could we have done differently? And there's often long discussions about security and such as that. And then you often see folks after the news becomes to percolate through perhaps the, uh, just uh, the streets of America as the news uh, is promulgated. There is this uprising uh, as folks begin to, uh, not knowing what to do, just to kind of force their way to uh, the state houses and Capitol buildings crying and clamoring for something to be done. Often we see these outcries demanding a change in our policies, especially regarding guns or 
gun violence. I want to let you know something, folks. I've had a firearm ever since I've been about 14 or 15, and it's never done violence to anybody. Uh, so it's interesting how they put those two words, gun violence, certainly capable of violence, but the violence typically comes from someone who has a criminal mindset or a violent mindset. And then in the streets often we'll see folks blaming government. It's the government's fault. More policies would help, they would say, and so they begin to blame government. And then the politicians come out and often make statements, often blaming, sometimes not, but making statements and promises of change. We're going to somehow do something. And there's this overwhelming um, not fear, but there's this overwhelming urgency in the hearts, especially after news like we've heard this past week. We've got to do something. There's an almost desperation, exasperation to do something. And so often we see politicians making promises, this is it. This is the last straw. We're going to do something this time that will eliminate or at least reduce the violence. And then once the criminals, if they do survive, are taken of these kinds of crimes, are taken to jail. We decide to have social reform and all kinds of programs that would help to at least recalculate or re, um, retool their thinking about why they do what they do. And so often we are surrounding the problem but not really addressing the real need of the heart. And yet, statistics alarm us. These aren't recent statistics, but between 2009 and 20, 1,363 people in the United States were killed, and 949 more were wounded in 240 mass shootings. In 2023, we are already keeping up, if not ahead of the schedule from the last years in terms of, and they consider a mass shooting anything three or four or more. Well, in those days, an average of 20 shootings occurred each year. Among casualties were many, many children and teens, as well as law enforcement officers killed and 35 wounded. What then shall we do? What is the church's and the Christian's response to these kinds of things? Wouldn't it be great if in the Bible there was some sort of response from Christ concerning these types of alarming things? I'm told that we are on a, a course this year even to keep, to keep up, uh, all things considered, with the tragedies even uh, at the same rate as has happened in the recent years. You see that chart as it seems to be increasing. And the Bible isn't surprised by this. God isn't either. It says in the last days, what? Savage men, <laughs> violent men will grow worse and worse. Uh, so what are we to do as Christians? Obviously, I'm not trying to belittle or decry the idea that there is great need for discussion about how to make schools safer, how to be careful about perhaps what policies are allowed in terms of the use of guns. But I, I want to tell you that the Lord in chapter 13 of Luke is presented with what seems to be an outcry. And you'll see this as we begin our text. We're really going to look at a couple of fig trees and opportunity and the Lord as he responds to this news. And I, I take it that the Lord was aware. <laughs> He's aware of everything. He was aware of the news of the day. Well, what's the real problem? And it would be 
interesting if we had a, a group think tonight, and I'm sure there'd be a lot of opinions about guns, assault rifles, and criminals, and policies, and is it violent video games, or passive parents, or security issues at school? Is it the politicians, and poli- is it permissive parenting? Is it mental illness? What is wrong with us? And so the debate continues and continues. And so the Lord presented here with an interesting scenario, and he was aware of it. In verse 1 of chapter 13 of Luke, there were present at that season some that told Christ of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering, said, he, knows, he knew their thoughts, said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things. He's asking about an issue there that had happened. The first phrase there in chapter 13, verse 1, is that, or at least the last phrase of that verse, is that Pilate had mingled the blood of these Galileans with their sacrifices. What is the deal? And the Lord would uh, let us know that there are indeed answers to the crisis in uh, the social framework, especially when it comes to surprises and what we would call tragedies. What is Christ saying? Jesus was aware of the news of the day. This didn't catch him by surprise. In fact, he would add to that scenario that was headlines at the time that Jesus wrote, was, uh, Jesus was speaking here. It was also, he knew of something else. We see it there in verse number four. Or of those 18 folks that were uh, working men, working on the tower in Siloam that fell, it could have been a tremor. It could have been an earthquake. It could have been poor engineering. We're not told of that. But the tower that was being built fell. And it seemed like such a random thing. But 18 workers were, were killed in the collapse. And he asked the question, he asked a hard question. Uh, do you think, speaking, returning this thought pattern to the disciples, think ye that they were sinners above all the men that dwelt in Jerusalem? Back up to verse 13 and excuse me, chapter 30, verse 1. There's the issue of the Galileans. What had happened there was that there were some Galileans that had come to the feast, the feast day there in uh, Jerusalem. And the Galileans uh, were, at least a certain sector of the Galileans, were very opposed. Josephus tells us a little bit of the background of this. They were very opposed to the idols and the images of Caesar that were placed around the courtyard of the temple. And so when they came, they were rioting about that. They were very much upset. And what Pilate had done had said, listen, to his his, uh, security guard, he says, uh, I want you to go, mix yourself in the crowd. Don't go dressed as soldiers. Uh, Go in plain clothes. And at a signal, anybody that's rioting, that's creating a stir about these idols built to Caesar, if you see that, pull out your sword and just simply dispatch them in the midst of their rioting. And, their, and so that's what happened. And that's why the phrase is that Pilate mingled their blood with their sacrifices. And so there was a great outcry, and even there was talk about, could it have been true that, uh, could it have been true that perhaps the Galileans that were slain, slaughtered by the soldiers in that day were in some way more out of fellowship, out of touch, 
that were maybe not as godly as the rest of us. Maybe, and you hear this sometime, maybe they deserved it because of their attitude. I remember when Katrina came 2005 and leveled much of the city of New Orleans, I heard preachers say, well, it's because it's New Orleans, right? And that's a wicked city, and that's God's judgment upon New Orleans. Or even down in Florida, as it was devastated by one of the many hurricanes that came through there, well, it's because of a policy they had about something or other. And there's often this chatter that's really nonsensical about things like this. And the Lord has, of course, has an answer. His response was to ask a hard question. He says, do you think, <laughs> do you think the people there at Covenant Presbyterian Christian School, those six beautiful faces, were in some way uh, deserving of this, more evil, more sinful, out of line with God, out of touch, than you are? Quiet. He got quiet. More deserving in terms of sinfulness? Certainly, we would say no, certainly not. And then again, he asks that question in verse 4. He repeats the question, Think ye that upon uh, the tower, the debris that fell and, and killed these 18 workers, do you think they were sinners above all? that dwelt in Jerusalem? You see, our mind is desperate to find some sort of reason. And we dig into the mind of the criminal if he survives somehow these shootings, these school shootings or these mass murders. We want to pick their brain as to why did they do what they did. I think some questions may be in line, but... The truth is, the heart of man is desperately wicked, sinful. It does bad things because at the root of our hearts, we're sinners, wicked, evil. And we, we like to find answers. We blame society, or we blame parenting. Or we, uh, I remember way back in the day when Hillary Clinton was first lady, she says it's going to take the whole world to solve the problems that we have. It's got to be just America. We're going to have to join hands with the globalism is the answer. Coming together and working things out and being nicer to one another takes a village. What are we going to do? And I dare say, although guns are being blamed and perhaps uh, there's social contributors to this, and the boy was, I understand, suicidal, other problems as well. We tend to chase rabbits. And the Lord is saying, do you think that they had issues that you don't have? Do you think uh, that they are sinful more than the Galileans, more than those the rest of the feast days? And the answer, of course, is no. And his response, to, then, he, then he changed the subject almost it's almost like, yes, Lord, we need to know why and what happened and what kind of thoughts that boy was, or what's going on. What can we do? Is it the, is it the political? Is, is that where we need to go for answers? And the Lord changes the subject. And I turn your attention, please, to verses 3 and 5. He repeats this. I tell you, and isn't it amazing that God 
doesn't blame the soldiers that slaughtered the Galileans. He doesn't even blame Caesar or the idols around the temple. He says, I want to tell you something. This is your moment of opportunity. Nay, but except ye repent, unless you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. God is good to remind us that same verse is repeated after that next, <laughs> that next illustration that had hit the news in his day. I tell you, whether or not you fall off a tower, get crushed by a tower, or lose your life to old age, or get killed in an accident on the road here in Atlanta, whatever it is, I tell you, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. What is God doing? What is he telling us? Jesus makes the issue very personal, not political, in verse 5. And again, I'm thankful to live in America. I'm thankful that we have due process. I'm thankful that the, the state house is open to those that come and make an appeal. I'm glad for this. I'm glad to be living in this country. And I think there are some political uh, contributors or there are some things that we can do as a church. In fact, before you think this message is all one-sided or lopsided, I'm thankful that in this state anyway, that according to Paul Smith, who sent me an email, he said, you know what? Because of the church and conservative voices, gambling, at least state-sponsored casino gambling, did not pass. And thank you for all of you who raised your voice. But the truth is God saw a larger concern, a, great, a greater thing. Because a sinner that is not allowed to gamble for another year in the state, if he doesn't meet Christ, he will perish in his sins. Let's not get sidetracked. Great political causes do exist. But the Lord is saying, I'm going to sidestep. I'm going to change the subject. I'm going to look all of you right in the eye and tell you life is short. These are simply examples. They're shocking examples of how life is short. These three little ones didn't know that that day in school would be their last one. Those teachers did not know that that day as they packed their lunch to go to school and teach children would be their last one. And the Lord looks at us and says, listen, understand something. Life is so short. And except we repent, and that doesn't mean change policy. And some policies need to be changed, I suppose. And and, and, or, or seek political. That's not where repentance is. It's not a change of policy or, or a change of protocol. Except ye repent. It's, it means repentance is to turn from what we're trusting in and trust in the finished work of Christ, to turn from our sin and to cry out for God's mercy while there is a moment to do that. So let's not, as they say, paint the deck while the ship is sinking. In the church, even we can get sidetracked by these discussions about what uh, should have been done or what uh, this perpetrator was thinking. The question is, and the Lord would bring it to our hearts, except you turn to God while there's time you will face a similar end. You will face judgment before God without the right answer. Yes, I've come to Christ, accepted His mercy and grace. And isn't it great of the Lord who just simply 
side, just does a side, an end around all these endless discussions about what's wrong, who's wrong, what's wrong with society. Well, we're sinners, and we're short, we're short-lived sinners or short-lived sinners. We don't have much time, and the Lord saw that, and so He said, "Except you repent." I want to make this very personal tonight. We are living in the day of grace. A couple things that means to us. Number one, that God is giving us this season to repent. Your neighbor is living in the day of grace. We have this season to repent. Not only is that true, but we are living in America where we experience uh, double measures of grace, the freedom to speak the truth about the gospel to others. And that is the concern of God's heart. And so he says, I, I want to tell you something. Before you try to wrangle out who is the most at fault, who what happened, was it the builder, the engineer, the architect? Was it the Galileans or was it... Uh, no. He says, look at me. Except you repent, you will perish in your sins. And you think about how long eternity is without Christ. What a great, uh, what a great reminder of that. And then Jesus clarifies the urgency of the moment and he does that by a uh, by a and I want to talk to you tonight because I, I want to stay in the vein of what happened before Christ was taken to the cross on Monday of the Passion Week after the triumphal entry the Lord would uh, this is later the Lord would curse a fig tree remember that it just kind of seemed random We'll look at that in just a moment, but here we see it again. He, this is a parable. This isn't the end of his ministry right here in Luke 13. It's earlier on, but he's driving home the truth of what he's just said. Except you repent, you'll perish. He says, I want to tell you a story, a parable. That means a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And he says this, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. Now that's unusual. A vineyard is for grapes. And so this fig tree had an unusual privilege of its placement. It was smack dab in the middle of a well-cultured vineyard, well cared for. And he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. He said, again, we, we, I want you to think about the word opportunity now. Because he's just said, you're, you're going to miss your opportunity if you wrangle about the details of who was the most at fault over these crisis incidents. He said he under the dresser of his vineyard, behold, these three years have I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. So, uh, so, uh, so husbandman, or excuse me, the one who takes care of the vineyard, I want you to cut it down. Why does it cumber? Why does it use up the soil, the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, master, husbandman, let it alone this year also. <laughs> We've already had this discussion a year or two ago. Till I shall dig about it and then fertilize or dung it. And if it bear fruit, well. And then if not, after that, thou uh, shalt cut it down. But please give me another season of opportunity. Give me some more time to work with this, <laughs> this, this tree, this fig tree. It's, it's not bearing fruit. I told you about a, a little lilac bush that I planted years ago. And then I realized that in Georgia... Lilacs don't do well. They need harder winters. I didn't know that. We're kind of out of the zone for lilacs. Now, 
You say, Pastor, are you a flower child? What's the deal here? What's the point? Well, uh, two years ago, I said to my lovely wife, Robin, I said, honey, I love the smell of lilacs. And we had it up north, and so I decided to buy it and plant it. And here it has been three or four years, and this thing is doing nothing. It's doing nothing. And so I'm going to take it out of that spot. It's in a prime spot. And I'm going to plant something else there. Crepe myrtle. All God's Georgians said amen. Uh, I'm going to plant something that works down here. Azalea, something. And she said, well, let's give it another year. Then we had a cold winter. And I came out last year. And I circled it with my axe, just looking at it cross-eyed. Your days are up. You cumber the soil. And I looked around and I saw five or six blooms. I snatched them up, put them in a jar, took them, and our whole house smelled beautiful. This year, guess what? They're all over the place. If you need some lilac blooms, come over. At least you can come by and take a big sniff of it. It's just glorious. And this is the week at our house anyway. And so the point is, this, this man said... Master of the vineyard, if you don't mind, just give, we're going to work it over. We're going to do the soil thing and we're going to do our best to take care of it. And then maybe, and what is the point here? After this discussion about these two tragedies, so-called, the Lord is saying, uh, this is your moment, Israel. This is your moment of opportunity. I've sent you the prophets I've sent you the patriarchs. I've sent you the law. And I've given you the best. Isaiah said, I've planted you in a a very wonderful vineyard. I've tended you. I've protected you. What more could I ask from my vineyard? But you're bringing forth, Isaiah chapter 5, you're bringing forth sour grapes. Bible Baptist Church. I wonder what God would say to us tonight. I've given you a great legacy in terms of pastors and a great legacy in terms of of resources and think of where you're situated on a lovely place and we've given you such a wonderful background of godly teachers and my, you think about how we've been blessed by the Pyle family and others, Brad Blanton, others who just come and poured their hearts out in order that we might be deeply rooted, well cared for, biblically taught. And God is looking at us and saying, this is your season of opportunity. We have all of eternity to look backwards and say, Lord, thank you for the placement. And the Lord is just speaking to Israel here. I have given you the very best. And now my own son has come. Christ himself standing here, and you're worried about how sinful the Galileans are, this is your moment of opportunity. When something like this kind of thing happens in the news, the first thing that I think of isn't what, what could they have done better, or maybe, they, maybe it was their fault, or this kid, was there a vendetta? I set that aside, and I asked the Lord, just this moment. That could be my child or yours. Do our children in school know Christ? Have they been confronted with the gospel? 
Do my neighbors know? This is the season of opportunity. So Jesus clarifies the moment. He does. And in this text, it's a parable about a fig tree that's given opportunity. But there is another text. It's found in Mark 4, just for a moment. Excuse me, Mark 11. And let's go there as we wrap things up. Mark 11. This time, the Lord isn't as gracious. In fact, here's a parable, and then we come now to the reality of something that happened again in the final week of his life on earth in terms of before the crucifixion, Mark chapter 11. It says on the Monday, of course, there's the, the, the casting out of the money changers, so forth. They're evicted from the temple. And then we get to um, verse, I'm sorry, verse 12. Let's go back to verse 11. And Jesus entering in Jerusalem into the temple, and when he had looked around about all things, and now the evening has come, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And on the morning when they were come from Bethany, this is a favorite stopping place of his at the home of Lazarus and uh, Mary and so forth, Martha, seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came if perchance or haply he might find any thing thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for the time of figs was not yet. Uh, that's kind of confusing, but when there's that many leaves, it's kind of the early, that should signify that that tree at least has early fruit upon it. And Jesus came naturally expecting, of course he knew, but he came to the tree, expect, he was hungry, the Bible tells us that, and he wanted to eat some figs. And so he came and there was nothing. Now Jesus here is at the Remember the parable came earlier in his ministry. He said, Israel, you've got time. This is your moment. And now he's going to do something a little bit different with the fig tree. As we see, he curses it. And he says in verse 14, No man will eat fruit of thee, speaking of the fig tree, hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it almost in passing. It's almost like, Lord, are you really mad at this tree? We can go somewhere else, maybe purchase some food. But the Lord is making a point. It's a follow-up even to this prior parable. And then verse 20, they, of course, they come back out of town on their way out. They passed by and they saw the fig tree dried up from the root, stock to stem. And Peter, calling to remembrance, said unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursed is withered away. And Jesus answering said unto him, or them, have faith in God. Peter, believe me when I say what I say. All of us, unless we repent, turn from our sins, become believers in Christ, trust his finished work, will perish. Peter, just like this tree, believe what I say. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you.